actually have a fail bonus at High Rock. If you try to do something big for a client and it fails, we'll give you $1,000 because I don't want people to get scared of failure. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in Accounting. We're a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. If you're a brand new listener, welcome to the show. We're a podcast that's all about highlighting the different paths that you can take with a background in accounting. And if you've been with us for several episodes, welcome back. We appreciate you choosing to listen in. And if you enjoy the podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. We really, really appreciate the reviews. Well, for this week, we have Liz Mason of High Rock Accounting in the Scottsdale, Arizona area joining us for the show. And as you're going to hear in the interview, Liz has a lot going on. High Rock is about five years old. She has two other new related businesses, and they have one other that's set to launch next year. One common theme with Liz, though, is innovation. Early on in her career, while she was still very much an entry-level staff person, she realized that she had a natural interest in making the profession better through technology, and that carries on through businesses today. And as if that's not enough, you need to check out their salsa eating video interviews as well. I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but honestly, if I gave you that URL here in this intro, you may just skip the podcast and go straight to the videos, and we can't have that, of course, but make sure you check out that as well. There's some serious, valuable content to their online show, and they produce it with a lot of fun and some very hot salsa. If you do find value in this for yourself, please check us out online as well. You can find us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We have all kinds of audio and written accounting career-focused materials there. Books, blogs, other podcasts, and even a few tools for employers as well. If you are an employer, one publication that may interest you is Hiring for Accounting. It's a 45-page ebook that's specifically focused on successfully filling accounting positions. You can find that once again on our website at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Liz Mason of High Rock Accounting. Well, hello, Liz. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. No problem. Well, for our audience, we've been trying to schedule this one for a while. Our guest today is in high demand, which is a great thing. (laughs) We have Liz Mason from High Rock Accounting on the show with us today. And Liz has her own firm in the Scottsdale area, and she's known for innovation. I've seen her quoted in the Journal of Accountancy. Plus, I know she keeps company with some of the most forward-thinking people in our profession because she was actually recommended to us by one of our former guests, Sarah Elliott. Sarah's a great friend of the show. (laughs) And a great Um, friend of mine as well. Yes, wonderful person. I'm really looking forward to getting into all that. And Liz, also, I'm looking forward to getting into some information on your firm as well, because I know you guys are about five years old, and I'm sure there's a lot of learning opportunities for us there also. Before we get into the present day, though, I think it's important for the audience to sort of get an idea of where you came from and, you know, what led you to where you are today. What initially caused you to think about pursuing accounting as a possible career in the first place? (laughs) 
Great question. And also, I have to say my story is not traditional in any way, shape or form. Considering the first time I started doing accounting, it was the summer I learned how to read and write. So I come from a family of accountants. My father is an accountant and a lawyer and a professor of accounting. My aunt is an accountant that runs a management company for musicians and other highly entertaining folks. Uh, my grandfather is a CPA, worked his career through big accounting firms. My uncle is an EA preparing taxes. And so as you can see, there's a lot of it in our blood. So when I was a kid and I used to go to my my father's office, which my aunt also officed out of, I would be basically conscripted into helping the family business, which meant I was writing checks out. I was doing bank reconciliation. So I would sit there with a paper bank statement and check off all of the transactions that went through. And then I would also, you know, open the mail and sort through things for them. Wow. But it was it was a <laughs> our family, you know, definitely took advantage of the free labor and I was eager to help. So by the time I was ten, I was helping my dad prepare K ones to send out for large tax returns. He was working on movie financing at that point, which were giant big partnerships uh, that we had to help prepare the returns for. So I was helping him with that. And by the time I was 12, my dad actually decided to go back to school for accounting. So he got his PhD. And I was a little bit of a rebel of it as a kid. And I tended to get grounded quite a bit. So my dad would come up with very creative ways to ground me. And the best one he thinks, anyways, I think it was pretty miserable. But the best way he came up with was to force me to actually take accounting final every time I got grounded. So I wasn't ungrounded until I would get a B or better on the final which meant that I would study my butt off to do it as quickly as possible (laughs) because I was a middle schooler. So I actually started taking uh, managerial and financial accounting classes at a college level when I was 12. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know how to party, Liz, I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, totally, right? (laughs) So I was a tortured, I was a tortured individual as a kid forced to, you know, help do all these things in accounting. And so it never really occurred to me to pursue accounting as a career. I spent my childhood helping with these things. I understood them, and I got to college. So my first year of college, I was very determined I wanted to do something in business. So I entered the business school. I'm a pretty creative person in general. So I decided to go do marketing, thinking that was, like, the most creative outlet of business, right? My first marketing class, I had a professor who graded me down for an assignment because of some color interaction that he thought was bad and would send the wrong message. And I got annoyed and decided I was not going to do marketing. So I went to finance and I took a bunch of finance classes like the job prospects. So then I decided to do a joint degree in accounting and finance. And I graduated from University of Nevada in three years summa cum laude with both degrees in accounting and finance. And then I launched into this career of accounting. You know, there's probably a joke in here somewhere about (laughs) what majors were left, you know, that you didn't find. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I did take a fair number of economics classes as well, which I love. But also, I didn't want to end up with a PhD in econ. And there weren't jobs at a lower level that I thought would be as much fun. Oh, sure. Okay, I just have to ask, you're doing finals as a punishment in middle school. Mm -hmm. By the time you started taking your accounting courses in college, I mean, was it just sort of common sense for you, piece of cake? Quite frankly, it was very easy because I already knew all the material. Okay, yeah, I figured that's one of those punishments that, you know, you look back on, you go, hmm, I'm sort of thankful, you know, it happened. (laughs) Yeah, it was ingrained into my head in a way that um, actually for my 
400 level managerial accounting class. I went to, it was a summer school class. So it was shortened and it was supposed to be four days a week for, I think it was two months. And I went to the first like week of class and I was bored. Like I know all of this is so boring. So I went to the professor and I said, Dr. Kerr, I would really like to not have to sit through your class. How can I finish it without being here? And he was like, this, that's not a thing. Was all, okay, but what if I took like the final exam and you could give me whatever I got on the final exam on for the class? What if we did that? And he kind of looked at me and he's like, let me think about it. So the next day he came in like kind of smiling in a, you know, kind of devious way. And he goes, yeah, so show up on Saturday and I'll give you an exam. Expect it to take 10 hours. I said, okay. And he completely thought I would back out, showed up on Saturday, took his 10 hour exam and finished it. And he graded it and I got a 92% and he was so mad, but he agreed to this deal. So that's what I got in my managerial accounting class. And I didn't actually have to sit through the whole semester. Oh my gosh. Are you a little bit of a gambler <laughs> as well? <laughs> Sometimes. Well, when it's a sure thing, you know, I guess it's not a gamble. It was definitely a topic I knew. So in my head, it was an easy way to not have to sit through summer school. Okay. I didn't intend to ask about this, but uh, you just really piqued my interest. Did passing the CPA exam come as easy for you? I mean, I know it's always so hard, but... It's definitely hard. I was very young. I graduated when I was 21 and I started sitting for the CPA exam almost immediately. And I studied on chairlifts. I'm an avid skier and snowboarder. So I bought the smallest books I could find, which at the time were the Kaplan review books. And I fit them into my jacket and I would study on the chairlift. And I managed to pass three on the first time. The fourth one that I didn't pass, I actually had the flu. So I didn't even finish it because I was throwing up in the bathroom. So I think I would have passed if I actually... um if I had been healthy. Okay. But it wasn't easy by any means. I definitely studied and worked very hard for it. Okay. I just had to ask because... I, it's a I fair question. Off, <laughs> I started off working for my father as well, and he was a CPA, and I was forced labor in sixth grade, and my first <laughs> job was adding accounts to the general ledger on a computer, mm-hmm. you know, and I found that, yeah, by the time I got to college, it just made it that much easier and, you know, passed the yep. exam the first time, and yeah, I didn't enjoy it in sixth grade, you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, tell us about your first experiences then out of college, because I know what you're doing now, and I want to get into that, but I'm not sure about, you know, the time in between. What did you do? What were some of the milestones? So like I said, I graduated early. I was 21. Um, Before I graduated, I started an internship with Grant Thornton, which I was at the University of Nevada in Reno. They have a great office in Reno. So I graduated early, went to work for Grant Thornton. I actually had an internship with them before I graduated. So I started full-time when I was 20. And I actually, for the first training, I went to the partner, in, one of the partners in the tax department forced me to bring my fake ID so that I could go you know, out to the bars with everyone because they couldn't fathom not having the entire team at the bar, <laughs> which is a very Reno um, mentality and culture, which was quite funny. But in that first year, when I was 20, I decided their processes were really bad. So they were working on paper. Everything was copied from tax files and put into a paper binder and hand referenced and then entered into the tax system. So yes, I am that old. It was that many years ago that they were paper-based. So I automated a piece of that and I scanned the documents, had the OCR recognize information, go into Excel. And then from Excel, I built a little program that automatically put it into the right fields in the tax software. And I would run this on a second laptop at my desk during busy season. So after 
probably about six months of me doing this without telling anyone, the managing partner called me into her office and said, I don't understand how you're so much more efficient than everyone else. We're giving you projects with 10 hour budgets and you're doing them in two. She thought I was eating time just trying to make myself look better. But in reality, I had this little robot in my back pocket. And so I was scared. I thought I was going to get fired. So I'm sitting in her office and I, do I tell the truth or do I lie? I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell her the truth and risk my job because in my head, they always were about, you know, pay your dues, do everything the way that we did it last year, get to the point, right? So I'm sitting there almost in tears. I look up at this extremely powerful woman that I had a ton of respect for. And I told her, I said, I built a computer program to do my job for me. I am so sorry. It won't happen again. I'll delete it. And she goes, wait, back up. What did you do? And so I told her and then I showed her like I went and got my laptop and I showed her what I had been doing. And she was like, hang on. And she called the head of the National Impact a process group for Grant Thornton and said, hey, I have this girl here that I don't know what to do with. She built a computer program to automate her job. And he was like, what? I want to talk to her. So it was a great introduction. I ended up consulting with them for about six months until they ha- they hired me full time in their national tax process and tools group. And I was part of the team that helped implement a paperless system for Grant Thornton, you know, back in the day. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love it. I'm so that was a great project. <laughs> I'm picturing you saying there, don't fire me. I, I improved productivity 4X. Don't let me go. You know, oh my gosh. <laughs> now that I look back on that from the perspective of, you know, a firm owner and partner, I see, like, I try really hard not to intimidate my people to that degree, but I also see where the culture at that time was not innovative at all. It was very much like work your butt off and put in all the hours. And so from a cultural perspective, I personally didn't know that I was allowed to think outside the box. And so like I was terrified. I was really terrified I was going to get fired. Wow. Wow. And this wasn't that long ago, right? Maybe 10 years? Well, a little more than that. It was 2005, 2006, around there. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been that long. And I mean, because we're still having those conversations today, you know, and yeah. interesting. Okay. What was next for you after Grant Thornton? So I was engaged at the time when I got offered this job to move up to the national tax group. And I accepted the position without ever having gone to Phoenix. So the position was in Phoenix and I lived in Reno. I was engaged. I accepted a position in a different city. Didn't even tell my uh, fiance at the time that I was doing that. So I went home and I said, hey, babe, want to move to Phoenix? And he uh, he kind of had a moment of like, what are you talking about and what happened? <laughs> so we had we had a good heart to heart. We ended up, I pushed back my start date by four months and we got married and then moved together to Phoenix. So I worked for Grant for another year after that. It was actually not a great year for me. I was very young and I was implementing a lot of change and having to train partners. So as you can imagine, the partners in the middle of the country that have been doing this forever were not super excited about that. And I got yelled at a lot. So not my ideal position. I ended up leaving. I went to work for RSM McGladry down here in Phoenix. And it was a great experience. Worked on some high-level tax work in their corporate tax group. And I loved it. And from there, I actually left to follow an audit partner to be a tax person in a newer office in Phoenix. And it was a local firm. So I was hoping that it would be very much, you know, helping clients grow and and working on, on that mentality. And it was to a certain degree, but it also didn't fit all the, the needs that I had and the culture wasn't what I had hoped. And so at that point I quit and I had 
no job. I had no real idea of what I was going to do building a company. And it was a week before the AICPA Leadership Academy. So I walk into this room at Leadership Academy with these 35 amazing people under 35 with no job and no plan. It was a very humbling experience, to say the least. Wow. So what happened at the Leadership Academy? It was actually one of the best experiences of my life, just from from a, a realization standpoint and a development standpoint. I got more out of that one week than I think I have out of any other week in my life. And one of the things that I realized was that I had these big ideas and I had this knowledge base in technology. Oh, and somewhere along the line, I got my master's in information systems at night. So I worked on that while I was working full-time in public accounting. That was a crazy year, but it worked. So I have this great knowledge base in technology and innovation and also big ideas for what I could do. And I kept feeling like I was being hamstrung by firm mentality and existing client base and other politics that I personally don't deal well with. And so... From Leadership Academy, I had the confidence and the connections to really build my own company. And so I actually founded Hyrock with another person who went to Leadership Academy with me. Unfortunately, he has since left the firm, but it was a great moment of learning and development for me. Okay. I want to get into Hyrock. Before we do, I'm curious, I saw something about being COO at Headlamp Research. And it looked like it was during this time when you were working full-time. And, you know, COO is sort of a big title. So <laughs> could, could you tell yeah, us a little bit about so that as well? I can, absolutely. So my sister is an extremely innovative human. And her one of her best friends and her decided to build this company called Headlamp to do online psychology research that would be able to get through the board reviews at universities to actually be published. And so they were building a platform for that. And we, in that process, were actually awarded an SBIR innovation grant, so a small business innovation and research grant from the federal government. And so I worked with them very heavily on the strategic plan, writing out the grant proposal, and then also the financial side, so understanding all of the things on that side. So it was a great experience for me. I was very young and it was, you know, the only reason I was involved was because I have an awesome sister who knew I could do these things, even though I was a, you know, 20 something year old. <laughs> and, you know, I learned a lot through the grant process and then also through just like going out for funding and working through the platform. Unfortunately, uh, there were other people working on the same idea at the same time, which is great because, you know, it validates the idea and our platform wasn't uh, robust enough to win, but it was an amazing experience. Okay. You are definitely efficient about using every minute because you were working at McGladry at the time, and I think that's around mm-hmm. the same time you're finishing your master's degree. So <laughs> yep. why not add on yeah. you know, a, a new startup? <laughs> at the well, same time. and I think, you know, to me personally, I always focus on what makes me happy and engaged. And quite frankly, in public accounting, I failed to be engaged for many years. There were certain projects I would work on that were amazing and would keep my complete interest and, you know, totally occupy me. But there was always this part of me that wanted more, wanted to do something different and didn't quite fit that perfect public accounting mold. And I used to tell my boss at at RSM that I was a terrible employee. And he would always laugh and say, yeah, you really are a terrible employee. You tell me how to do my job. You constantly ask for different projects than you're on. Like you don't want to do the same thing you did ever again. And that's a very difficult person to manage. And so, you know, these side projects and getting my master's 
were for sure ways to keep my brain and my soul really a well-oiled and happy machine. Well, yeah, the natural progression then is to go start your own practice. <laughs> yes, yes, I was. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So what were the early days like with High Rock Innovative Accounting Solutions? I mean, how did you all get it started? Did you have customers to start with or how did you find them? What were the Yeah, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I quit with no plans. So when we started High Rock, there really were no clients and no true idea other than we could build an awesome culture, so a place that we could have people have long, fulfilling careers, be able to challenge them and move them up through the ranks quicker than just the number of years they've been employed. And then also use this innovative technology that exists at the cutting edge, but accountants are too scared to implement. So we were part of the first 2% of accounting firms to be fully cloud-based, and we were implementing cloud accounting systems before most people knew what that meant. And so Hyrock very much was born with with ideas and no no real plan. So the early days were very scrappy, spending as little money as possible, working as hard as possible. I picked up a few clients by sheer luck of, you know, talking to the right people and telling them what we were doing. We ended up focusing very heavily on SaaS companies and technology companies because they understood what we were doing. They were building their own SaaS technology. It made sense for them to utilize this in their accounting system. And they loved the idea of a single ledger where, you know, it's not sending something back and forth. Everybody can log in and see all of the information at the same time. Interesting. Is that still your focus? Do you still have a... It is. We have... We have a big niche in technology companies, staff companies, biotech companies, um, and we work with everyone from pre-revenue baby startups that are just looking to get funding all the way up to publicly traded entities. And did I have that right? You are in the Scottsdale area, right? Or Phoenix? Yep, we're in Phoenix. Currently, our office is in the Scottsdale Air Park, so that's our address. We started out of, you know, whatever co-working space we were in at the moment and public libraries and you know, um, the back office of a lawyer that we were friends with at one point. <laughs> okay. I'm curious, how many of your clients are, are even, you know, within an hour of your office? Are they all remote effectively? Or? About 40% of our client base is in the Phoenix area, okay. and the rest of them are all over the country. And then we have a few international clients as well. Okay. Well, what does High Rock look like today, employee-wise or focus-wise, that kind of thing? So today at High Rock, we have 12 employees, and we have three starting next Monday. So that's exciting. That is. <laughs> yeah, this year has been rapid growth. Actually, we've already doubled from last year, and so we're on track to probably do 250 to 300% of the revenue of last year, which is crazy but exciting. And we're also working on a couple new brands. So High Rock being the core business, we also have Rebel Rock, which is focusing on cannabis and CBD and also hemp in general. And then we have Tackle, which we're doing outsource HR and operations. So that's been a lot of fun to build as well. And that company from ideation to monthly recurring revenue was about three weeks. I think that was the fastest I've ever built something profitable. (laughs) Wow. So it's been five years. I guess what have been some of the bigger challenges or how things changed in those five years? What are some of the lessons that you picked up along the way? So I effectively quit public accounting when I was a manager and I jumped into being a partner. So Many firms, and I believe this is a great thing that they do, do a lot of leadership development with people, and so they teach them. 
which, you know, is great, right? So they teach them how to sell. They teach them how to grow and develop talent. They teach them how to project manage at a very high level and to be able to bring in new work and plan for it. And these were all skills that I was okay at. At the time, I thought I was pretty good at it. And I was pretty good for the level I was at. I was not pretty good for a partner level. So the growth and development that I've had to go through in the last five years to get our firm to where we are today has been exorbitant. To me, it was extremely exciting. And I've been learning and and absorbing as much knowledge as I possibly can from any place that'll give it to me. But it's also difficult and set me, I think, behind the curve a little bit to start. When you leave public accounting as a partner, you've already gone through all of that. So it's a little easier to build a company. What are some of the more successful things you've done in the area of personal development? What do you feel has really worked to make that leap? Anything specific? The one thing I can say made the biggest difference is only surrounding myself with incredibly intelligent, motivated humans that are also on this journey. The second that I stopped hanging out with people that didn't understand what I was doing, that didn't appreciate it, that couldn't support me in any way on the entrepreneurial journey, I had so much more growth. So people like Sarah who referred me to this podcast have been my sounding board. They've been the people that I can call and say, I'm in this you know, I'm having this issue, I don't know how to solve it, or I'm personally struggling with, you know, the growth that we're trying to do, and I don't know how we're going to get through it, and I'm anxious about it. Just be having those people to talk to that have experience that are going through it as well, that get what it's like to be an entrepreneur, but building that network was the best thing I ever did. Okay. Yeah, I found in my own business endeavors that basically having a coach and or having individuals like that who yeah, understand mm-hmm. where you're going makes a huge difference for sure. Something else you've said a few times piqued my interest. You said, you know, I left public accounting, I quit public accounting. You have an accounting business. Do you feel like you're not in public accounting now or how do you define that? Yeah. So no, technically I am. Technically I run a public accounting firm. But when I say that, I left the traditional public accounting behind and I did it full heartedly. So Hyrock is a public accounting firm by definition. We are not by culture and we are not by the way that we service our clients. We don't do hourly billing. We don't, you know, create this adversarial relationship that occurs with public accounting. We're on their side. And so we're really the internal accounting department for these companies. And so while technically, yes, I'm a registered public CPA firm and, you know, Hyrock is a public accounting firm, it is not in the way that we operate or in the way that we treat our people. Okay. I could tell there was a distinction there. and Yeah, interesting. Yeah, very insightful to pick up on that. Part of our culture is to be very deliberate about how we talk about things. So, you know, in the way that we address team members, they're our team, they're not our staff. They're on our team. Uh, things like that that are very different in these traditional public accounting firms. And so I try uh, mentally and also in our culture and ongoing just just make that distinct through our vocabulary and the way we talk about the firm. Okay. So what are your dreams for the business or your career? (laughs) That is an excellent question. So I have two driving forces. One, I will change the face of accounting. And two, I will make it a better place for people to have a lifelong career. And this came about partially because when I was thinking about leaving, I called my grandfather, who I, I mentioned earlier was a CPA, and I said, Grandpa, was it worth it? Was your career in public accounting firms and these big firms working 80 hours a week worth it? And he said, no, but it was worth it to put food on the table 
It was worth it to be able to support my family and it was worth it to be able to have my retirement. And so that made me think. And I've had subsequent conversations with him about it. And he very joyously, I guess, likes what I'm doing and is able to relate and say, I wish when I was a young CTA, there was something like that for me. And quite frankly, I think that there can be. And so one of my goals, which has been a goal since I, you know, left the traditional path and started the innovative path, one of my goals was to build a place where people could do that on their own. And so we have, I mean, we have internal staff and obviously we're growing very quickly and our team is great and awesome and they will have the opportunity to develop and grow into their people. But it's still not the same as running your own practice or having the growth and development to do that. So I have a secret code word called Nucleus, and our Nucleus project is what we're building to fulfill that need of mine to give back to the CPA community in general. And we're building out a training platform, a coaching platform, and a place for people to get referrals and leads all under the Hyrox brand so that Theoretically, someone can leave public accounting as a manager, get all the growth and development they need, all the support they need to be their own entrepreneur, build their own book of business, and not only be able to own it, have a back office staff immediately to do the bookkeeping and the other lower level work that they might not want to do. Wow. Okay. All right. You're already making me think about episode number two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, everything moves very quickly here. So this year we've launched two new brands. This nucleus is, I mean, that's been the code word for the last four years, and it'll launch next year for sure. And um, that's really my goal is, like I said, it's really to build a better future for accounting. Okay. Gosh, there's a couple things I want to ask you about. I'm just deciding (laughs) which one first. A large part of our audience is early on in their career, some even students, but definitely let's say, you know, junior in college through, you know, first few years in their career. What advice would you have for that part of the career demographic? I would say learn as much as you can and ask for stretch assignments. Don't wait for them to come to you. The one thing that I saw between my career progression and my peers was I was not more talented and I was not more intelligent and I didn't work harder, but I advanced quicker. And it was because I was constantly asking and pushing for challenging work. And so I would say, be your own advocate in that and make sure that you're fulfilled in what you're doing. I mean, it's hard going into public accounting is a lot of work. And it's basically a decision that you have to make to do that and be dedicated to it. But understanding that you are in control of it. And I think, you know, had some of my peers had that insight at the time, they would have progressed faster and been able to do more. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) The other item I wanted to ask you about, and I was struggling, and I think it's just better to leave this till the end. We do have three questions we end every podcast with, but before we get to that, I just have to ask because, so Sarah Elliott sends me this email. Like I said, she referred you. She sends me an email and she says, you know, you may want to consider Liz for the show. You know, she's doing some amazing things in the area of innovation. And by the way, you may want to check out the YouTube video where she's eating salsa. And, and, you know, I hear the amazing thing and innovation a lot. I'm like, wait a minute, YouTube, salsa? (laughs) So, you know what I see there. I go there and I see you and a coworker or, you know, colleague sitting there with a Lazy Susan, I think is what you call it, and a whole bunch of salsa. Um, Towards the end, y'all are crying and drinking milk and I don't know what else. (laughs) 
So, so, <laughs> some tequila in there as well. <laughs> and then when I invited you, I thought it was a one-time thing. And then just last week before, you know, when we were scheduling all this, I went and looked and, no, there's a few of those. So yeah. talk to us about Salsa and YouTube. I, I don't even know how to answer ask that question, but yeah. So <laughs> we started a show called The Hot Account. And the goal of it was to talk about small business topics. So in, you know, doing advisement for small businesses, we find frequently there's a lot of overlap and we know a lot of experts. So we're constantly referring people out to ask these questions. So instead, we decided to invite them on a YouTube show. So, you know, we were talking about how to organize this and what to do. And one of our team members, Neil, is actually like a huge fan of YouTube show where they eat hot wings and they interview celebrities. And so he was like, why don't we do a version of that where you eat chips and salsa? I mean, we're in Arizona. It makes sense. And we put hot sauce in all of the salsa. And of course, Melissa, my business partner, and I were like, that's an amazing idea. We can record two episodes in every day. Well, the reality of it is when you record one episode, your stomach is in knots and it hurts for like an entire day after that. So it kind of puts you out of commission for a little bit. But it's a fun thing. And we do, we try to interview really interesting people, you know, small business experts, as well as other people in the accounting industry. We actually have about 10 episodes recorded that have not been posted yet. So there will be more content on that YouTube channel. And like the cool part about it is people send us hot sauce from all over the place now. So I'm sitting in our, our recording studio at our office and there's a shelf just filled with hot sauce. And so it's just a fun little cultural thing that we do. How long have y'all been doing it? Let's see, almost two years now. Oh my gosh. That we've been recording them. Yeah. So we had to stop doing them every week because it was hurting and put my business partner and I out of commission for at least an afternoon, if not an entire day. And that lost productivity was just too much. So now we record them about once a month. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I'm curious, are you just simply scared when you open up a new jar of salsa from the mail or, or do you have a taster, you know, because I can imagine people are like, oh, she's never tasted anything this hot, you know. Uh, yeah, so we have, let's see, some of the ones we have are like 3 million Scoville units, so they're like the hottest hot sauce that exists made from Carolina Reapers, Goose Chili Peppers. Uh, we have a few that are combined, both of those. Yeah, they're just, they're pretty terrible. Yeah, that didn't even sound yeah. fun, uh, honestly. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really hard to sound intelligent when your mouth is on fire. So oh, it's wow. amusing. <laughs> I did notice that the videos aren't all that long, you know, that, you know, maybe eight, ten minutes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we try to longer. keep them pretty short. There's a few interviews we had that went close to an hour. We edited down quite a bit. But generally, we do either five or ten salsas, depending on the number of questions we have for the person. Okay. I just had to get more detail because I thought it was just one. And then when I started looking first, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, there was, frankly, far more than I could research, you know, by the time we had this schedule. So, yeah. wow, you're a brave lady, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we like to do things differently, that's for sure. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, and we do have three final questions to try to fit in here. So let me go ahead and start with the first one of those. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? That's a really great question, and one that's very hard to answer because my proudest moment wasn't about me. It was about my team. And at Hyrock, we are very team-oriented. In this past year, I've had pneumonia twice, which is terrible. And um, I've been dealing with some other lung issues because of it. 
And my team was able to step up completely. And I had two weeks where I wasn't in communication with anybody. And as anyone running a business can tell you, that's really difficult to do because there are so many different pieces, but my team was able to handle it all. And I was so proud of how far that they've come and what they're able to do without me being involved at all. And that to me was my proudest career moment was being able to build this team that works so cohesively and is so good at what they do that they don't need me anymore. Wow. That is special. And not just the fact that they can, but that they care enough. You know, to, yeah. to do that, that says a lot. That meant a lot. Wow. Well, second question, tell us about a lesson you learned the hard way. And the more details you can share, the better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, early in my career, so personality-wise, I am a very dominant personality. And I also don't understand when people don't see things the way that I see them if if I know my idea is really good. So early in my career, I was overbearing, I would say would be kind of an understatement and would frequently go in and tell people above me how they should do their job and why and why they were inefficient and things that they could do to improve and what I needed from them. And I was completely ignorant of all of the other reasons to not do things that way, right? Like, maybe the client actually needs a paper return because they don't have a computer. So they have to come in to sign by hand. And, you know, having a team member printed out is logical and makes sense. Well, there were lots of other factors that I didn't consider. And I look back and I think I get kind of embarrassed and think I was probably very disrespectful in an ignorant way. And so, you know, I think what I would have wanted to know at that point was that there's probably reasons people are doing things. And if you approach it from a, can you please teach me and not a, why am I doing this BS kind of way, you will learn things faster and be better for it. Wonderful. Uh, that's great advice for our audience. And, and frankly, I probably need that one today. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice? that you have ever received? So I'm going to answer this in two ways. The best piece of direct advice I ever received was from a career coach when I first started at Grant Thornton. And she told me, you have a curious mind and you need to read, but read in a very strategic way. So she helped me pick out books that would help me learn topics that I needed in the moment. And from there, I developed this habit of thinking, instead of thinking, okay, I can learn this on my own, of thinking, I'm struggling with X, let me find a book that helps me learn X. And I would focus, you know, on on reading those books, and I probably did, and I still do, I read about one book a month in trying to help myself learn those things. And now that I've been doing it for, you know, close to 15 years, I've read a lot of books. And I would say that that was the best piece of advice because I've learned so much over those years and so many things that I read in books maybe 10 years ago and I didn't see a, an application for at the moment. I call back on and I remember now and I it helps me every day. The other side of my answer would be inspirationally, I get advice from quotes. And so I try to look back on the greats, the people that I think have done amazing things in business. And one of my favorite quotes, well, actually, there's two by Walt Disney, who's one of my, I guess that you could say idols. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. 
that one is is one of those quotes that comes forefront to mind very frequently because I am constantly told you can't do that. That technology doesn't exist yet, or there's no way people will buy that service. And yet I am doing what everyone told me I couldn't do. And I am doing it in a way that they told me wouldn't succeed in a business model that was supposed to fail. So it's kind of fun to do the impossible. And the other quote that Walt Disney said is around here, we don't look backwards for very long. We keep moving forward. And that to me is a reminder to not dwell on mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. We actually have a fail bonus at Hyrock. If you try to do something big for a client and it fails, we'll give you $1,000 because I don't want people to get scared of failure. I want them to get scared of not trying to innovate. And so we reward that behavior because they tried and they had an idea and it was a big idea and, and it didn't work out. But we don't look backwards for very long. Reminds me every day to not dwell on mistakes and not dwell on things that happened in the past and focus very heavily on what we can do in the future and utilizing our curiosity to push us forward. Wow. You're the Walt Disney of accounting. (laughs) That's the biggest compliment I think anyone's ever given me. That is too cool. Well, your voice is about to give out and that is beautiful (laughs) advice to end this on. So I think we'll cut it right there. For the audience, this has been Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. If you haven't yet visited our website, please do. We have a tremendous amount of accounting career-related content there for you. Plus, in the show notes for every episode, we list a few more related episodes that may interest you as well. So please check out the show notes for Liz Mason's episode. Our website, once again, is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Liz, if someone wants to find out more about High Rock or about you, what's the best place to go on the web? So the best place online would be highrock.co. That's our website for High Rock Accounting. And you can find me on Twitter at Lizzie Norma. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. Beautiful. Well, thank you again for your time. And to the audience, thank you for your time as well. We will see everyone next week. 